Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to um, another Word in Your Ear, and uh, nice to see you back in the Islington. Now, our, uh, our next guest was uh, a member of the Crack Squad that put together the, the early editions of Mojo magazine in the early 90s. Did anybody read any the early editions of Mojo? This was one of the people involved. And I can remember this conversation we had. We were putting together a, um, a promotional book, a free promotional book to go with the, with the magazine. Uh, the 100 Greatest Singers of All Time which uh, was quite an original idea back then. And I can remember... <laughs> we may have invented it. And uh, I can remember suggesting to you that um, we included Rod Stewart in the 100 Greatest Singers of All Time. This is not the, the top ten, by the way. This is the hundred, you know. And he was so mortified by this. <laughs> it was brilliant. I can remember you pretty much saying, look, either Rod Stewart goes or I go. And, uh, you know, uh, it was almost... A, a, you know, it was, well, you were about ready to resign. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember being extremely impressed internally, actually. And I thought that was excellent. And I thought that, you know, that standard of discernment and taste was... <laughs> much, I love Rod Stewart myself. Was, has been applied to the, the wonderful books you've written about Prince and about... Um, uh, the band, Joni Mitchell, Tom Waits, and his next book, uh, the, well, the current book, the one we're going to talk about tonight, Small Town Talk, is about the, uh, the, the magical collection of uh, musicians who arrived at, at Woodstock. And uh, so please welcome to the Islington, the very excellent Barney Hoskins. Here he is. It may have been, it may have been the, the, the late period, Bob uh, Rod Stewart, you were against. Or I think it was Rod Stewart generally. I think I remember you being absolutely incensed about it. I'm, I was I'm, so I'm impressed. surprised because whatever, whatever other feelings I've had about Rod Stewart, I've never disputed he's one of the greatest singers of all time. So I'm, I'm, I am Oh, uh, no, you perplexed. were mortified. Was I? No, yeah, you were oh, mortified. God. So maybe you've, you've changed your You haven't got it wrong because oh, it wasn't Rod, Rod Hull. Or Rod Hull! Yeah. <laughs> Rod Stewart and Emu. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, no, look, we're going to talk about Woodstock. And you, when you lived there for a while, didn't you live there four years? I think, yeah, I was Mojo's US correspondent yeah, it was uh, in the second half of the 1990s. What yeah. made you live there then? I um, had always wanted to live either in New York or somewhere on the, the East Coast. And, you know, just um, 
upped sticks with a young family. I mean, I would never, if I'd known how stressful it was going to be, I would never have done it. But of course, having done it, you don't regret having done it. It was an amazing adventure. But it was really traumatic to move from, from London to Woodstock. And I don't, we didn't know anybody there. And I'd, uh, and my. But why did you move there? Why, why did you? Um, well, the answer to that is because I had fallen in love with the idea of Woodstock through the band. I'd written a book about the band and I had been up there to do interviews for that book. And, and I'd just sort of fallen in love with, with, with the place. With, and, and so I thought that would be the place to live, really. It's a music town. You're in the, I wanted to live in the country. I wanted to live in the Catskills. But as everyone says about Woodstock, the great thing about Woodstock is you're, you're in the country, but you're not surrounded by Trump supporters. <laughs> <laughs> Very few Trump supporters there. For the benefit yeah. of anybody who's never been there, this gives you an idea of where yeah. it is, Barney. Yeah. Just point it out. So we've got yes, New York City here. You just sort of drive directly north from New York City, up the, the, the three-way, the 87, and then you sort of you just turn left, basically, uh, Kingston here. And it's, so if you can see Phoenicia near where Tony Fletcher lives, and Hurley uh, is Woodstock. So, so it's about two, two and a little bit hours from, from Manhattan. So it's quite scenic and pretty. It is, it is. I mean, it, it's not a kind of quaint New England town, you know, but, um, yeah, it's surrounded by mountains and rivers and forests and things that I love. Right. Well, we found some old uh, pictures of, of Woodstock. This is from 1920s. It's fantastic. This is a Woodstock festival in 1920. Which is, uh, so this grand tradition has been going on a long time. And uh, there's another picture here of um, some uh, theatrical eccentrics and, and people in the 1940s, I think, painting, you know, and it's just wonderful. So what... You know, in the book, you talk about ballet dancers and weavers and artists and, you know, musicians and theatre people. Well, what, why, why did they collect? Why all these bohemians? Why were they there before yeah. the musicians, really? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. And it was a pretty wild place. I mean, when the hippies started showing up in the late 60s, some of the veterans of like the, the original Maverick Festival would say, you know, you think you're so wild and... Right, you know, you think you're bohemian. Well, you you should have been here yeah, with your wind in chimes, the 30s, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so the answer is that um, an arts colony was founded there in the very early years of the 20th century by by a Brit, as it happens. Um, and so that, that was Birdcliff. Then there was a sort of splinter colony, which was the Maverick. So it. You know, colonies were all the rage, basically, in those days. The Impressionists had colonies. And there were colonies in America. And this guy, Whitehead, who was a Yorkshireman, figured this was the perfect place. Um, and so Birdcliff was born, 1904. And everything really flows out of that. All the bohemianism, all the rock and roll, all the drugs and all the sex. It all really been going flows on for out years. of that. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, we've got... Um the structure of the book is really Albert, Albert um, Grossman, isn't it? I mean, Albert Grossman was the first person of this collection of people to, to buy a house there. And Grossman's story starts in the book, really, when he meets Dylan, you know. And, um, and he's such an interesting guy. I learned loads about him. I didn't know he, was, he had a junky prostitute wife, for a start. Not her, by the way. Not Before her. We get no, no, not her. No, that yeah. is, in fact, Sarah. Who Sally. Was on the cover. Yeah, that, Sally. That's Sally, who was yeah. not a junky prostitute. That's right, right. It's Categorically just, not. Yeah. <laughs> 
But um, so how did he discover Dylan and what was it that he saw in Dylan and what kind of, what kind of person was it? Was well, it? You know, Albert is such a fascinating guy. You know, he, he really divides opinion. But it's not really black and white with Albert. You know, he was sort of ruthless, but he also had a soul and he genuinely got great artists, you know. Whatever his reputation is, you only have to look at the people he managed over the course of, you know, 15 years. And it's, Jim, and his strike rate was was phenomenal. Um, So I think he sort of got what was great about unusual artists like Dylan, because the other folk managers on the Greenwich Village scene had a chance to get Dylan, but he was just too weird for them. And Grossman kind of got the weirdness, you know, he was, he was, he was prescient. What, so, was too, what was too weird about him? Well, I mean, where do you start, really? I mean, he was not cut from the kind of folk cloth. You know, you only have to sort of think back to sort of 61, 62, Dylan, Dylan, you know, whether he was a, you know, whatever, wherever he came from, whatever his, his inspirations were, Woody Guthrie, etc. he was not the classic kind of folk protest guy. You know, he was this skinny kid from, from Minnesota with a with a, a voice that was definitely not bel canto. And he couldn't really play the guitar and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, you wouldn't have, like, bet the shop on him. But, but Albert did. Albert just knew that these songs were, were extraordinary and unlike anything that anyone else had written. So but we know he, all this. Did he see him as a songwriter? Yeah, I think initially he figured that, so, which was why, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary had the huge hit with right. Blowing in the Wind. So I don't think Albert initially thought that Dylan was going to be, you know, the great the, the, singer-songwriter. He, he was going to write a lot of songs, he was going to sell those he songs. He was going to write people. these songs. Because that was um, their, their... So he, his, his breakthrough act were Peter, Paul and Mary, which, you know, I remember. And they were huge, yeah. Peter, Paul and Mary, for a while. Now, explain for people who don't know how Peter, Paul and Mary were put together... Yeah, they were they were really um, put together in, in an extremely uh, uh, efficient commercial way. I mean, it was the commercial face of of, of folk music. So this is One Direction type. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is not you know, quite. But, well, okay, yeah. but it was yeah, but it was slick. I mean, it was slick, really, and and, and I think they knew that. And but it worked. You know, it was they had the best arrangers, the best producers, the best album designers. All of that went, and it and it and it worked. And what they was worked Paul's huge. real name? Noel Stuckey. Noel, that's right. Yeah. Noel Stuckey. That's yes. right. Yes. So he said, "Well, you're Peter and you're Mary, and yes. you're now going to be Paul. Yeah. You're not going to be Noel that's Stuckey." It. He just he had yeah. to just he had to. Which is brilliant, actually, isn't it? It's <laughs> genius. It, yeah. it worked, but they were very polished, weren't they? And they were. I can remember them turning yeah. up. They were Sunday nights at London Palladium and all all this kind of stuff. They were, you know, they, 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 this was the first introduction of, of that kind of folk scene in, into the mainstream. Well, but the other really important thing to say about them is that is that Peter Peter Yarrow was the conduit for Dylan into Woodstock because Peter was the son of a of a Bohemian mother, who and and in fact uncle nephew of an uncle they had cabins in Woodstock so from a very early age Peter spent time there and it was it was Yarrow inviting Dylan up to stay in one of the cabins in 63 that really was the sort of the birth of, of everything that we're here to talk about. Right, right. So the, the relationship between, you know, Dylan and Grossman was, uh, you know, in the fullness of time, was a very bitter one and from, Bill, from Dylan's point of view, wasn't it? But not at the start at all. 
No, definitely not. And you he's know, sort of father figure. He was really yeah. a father figure, you know, and he was a tough guy. And Dylan was, you know, incredibly ambitious. You know, it was sort of disguised, but I think Dylan wanted to be a star. Yeah. And he knew that Albert could make him a star. And so he basically trusted Albert to work the machine and protect him. And that was... Albert's role, you know, with all his artists, and of course, it's the role of any great manager to protect the artist so that Dylan gets to do what he wants to do without any interference from John Hammond or anybody else. But Dylan was slightly suspicious early on. Was there's a lovely bit in the book where you, I, don't, I can't remember who it is you, you're quoting, but they describe uh, Albert as being uh, like a Cheshire cat in acres of field mice. So he's this guy who's looking for these musicians and he's thinking, I'm going to make a ton of money out of these people because he's incredibly commercially orientated isn't he and makes no kind of <laughs> secret yeah. of it really I mean he came into Greenwich Village like Al Capone or something you know you were not supposed to be a ruthless capitalist as a folk manager you know the, the Manny Greenhills and, and, and so forth were not kind of rapacious in that way Albert came in and was a bully and just uh, and just got his way I mean his his, his Apparently his greatest kind of negotiating tactic was just to say nothing. Yes. He would just sit there, and someone called him the grey cloud. He would just sit there like this, this grey cloud and say nothing. And eventually people would just end up kind of, they couldn't stand the silence. So they'd end up just giving Albert what he wanted. And yeah, because yeah. Anyway, <laughs> This is preserved for posterity, isn't it, in Don't Look Back, where, yeah. uh, where the famous scene taking place in Denmark Street in Soho with Tito Burns. Is Tito Burns, agent? indeed. Who's the indeed. agent, who's kind of a hard-nosed, old-fashioned agent trying to negotiate television appearance for Dylan. Yeah, so anyone who's seen Don't Look Back has some sense of what Albert was like. I think what's really interesting about that film is that uh, Don Panabaker, the director, told me that he, he said, look, Albert, are you you quite sure you want this in the film? And Albert said, I'm very comfortable with it. Yes. Yeah, he, was, he was delighted. Yeah. That, oh, yeah, was, that was the way was, the world was, was going to proceed. It was a calling it. card, wasn't it? He? he didn't yeah. need to do anything no. after that. No, exactly. know, people thought, he's exactly. mean and he's not yeah. easily you know, yeah. thrown off at all. It's, it's um, an extraordinary. Well, how did he deal with Dylan... You know, before he moved to... No, actually, he moved to Woodstock before the, the 66 tour, didn't he? This Because these pictures were the, the Cafe Expresso, yeah. where he wrote possibly Fourth Street, is that right? Ballad of a yeah. Thin Man? Dylan That's was right. spending an awful lot of time up. Any time that he could, he yeah. was spending up there and, and wrote a lot of his most famous songs there. And, and, and simultaneously, Albert bought this amazing house in Bearsville, um, in 1964, and you know Albert was was essentially based there until his death in 1986, and 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 then, as I'm sure you know, he he started to create this little kind of empire, sort of our in, in Bearsville, building studios and restaurants and so forth. So and then Dylan bought his own first house there in '65, and was there, um, based there, really, you know, absolutely living there, from from '66 through to almost 1970. And so this is a time when he's furiously uh, productive, isn't it? He, he just sat there at the typewriter and, and turned out these songs. Yes, and then, of course, and, until the accident, and then, and then it changes after that. Um, and he, you know, he goes in a very different direction. Um, and, you know, it would probably take too long to, to, to really explore all that. But he becomes 
this you know this this Woodstock guy the the the, the sort of you know the the, the pater familias in the in the in the seersucker jacket with the kids it's you know a new kid every nine months seems mm. to be seems to be coming out you know and um, you know this yeah so this is this is pastoral Bob you know this, and this is the Bob who ends up you know making a country and western record yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So it's very, very different from from kind of like a Rolling Stone and and, yeah. and, and just like Tom Thumbs Blues. Yeah, but there are all sorts of things that I I, I found out about which I, I didn't know. The little tiny details, a brilliant bit where um, when he's in Woodstock, he he exchanges a, a, a Warhol uh, painting for a leather couch, and uh, and how when he marries uh, Sarah on the right, he doesn't even invite his own parents, yeah. and uh, just all sorts of yeah. odd things. But I thought it was interesting also how ruthless he was with the women he went out with really you know that he was very ambitious and and quite exploitative wasn't he quite I mean cruel. that's Susie Rotola on the left there who he kind of you yeah. know met the political world through didn't he and his um, father was connected with Cuba and uh, you know it was kind of fashionable politics and then Joan Byers was a bigger star than he was isn't that right? And just you know. well, indeed, absolutely. Uh, I mean, she definitely sort of took took him under her wing, and he kind of outgrew her very quickly, and to the point where I think he was pretty cruel to both Susie and to to Joan. Um, we we really don't know how cruel he was to Sarah, but he was certainly unfaithful to her, and so you know he's had he's had a. a yeah, a strange relationship with the opposite sex. Let's just say that. There's a moment where Sarah and Joan are talking in the in the nineteen late 1970s, <laughs> I think, and she, Sarah discovers that uh, that, um, that I think Joan's uh, Jeremy given one of Sarah's nightgowns. Was that yeah, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 Dylan as a present. Yeah, yeah I think that's <laughs> right. I think uh, uh, Sarah Pretty turns up on stuff. Joan's doorstep and and and. Joanie's, or maybe it's the other way around, and she's yeah. wearing this. And she's like, oh, that's where it went. Yeah, that's where she it goes, went. Exactly. Yes, that's yeah. where it went. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think anybody ever has a hard word with Bob Dylan? You know, any of the females in life say, "Now you sit down there and you can <laughs> listen to me about yeah. you know what you've been doing." I don't think it happens. Tidy at all, your room and do the washing up. They, they, <laughs> the rubbish out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, because, you know, it's quite interesting because this transformation happens very quickly, doesn't it? You know, he's kind of unknown, 1961, 62. Mm. And within about four years, he's one of the most famous people in the world. Mm. And everybody around him is acutely aware of this, aren't they? Yeah. They're kind of circling him, you know. So nobody's challenging him at all, are they? No. No. And, and Albert certainly is making it very difficult for anybody to challenge Bob. You know, Bob is God and, and Albert is the guy who's just facilitating that kind of megalomania, really. And uh, people like Byers, I think, were really alarmed by just how sort of crazy Dylan was becoming. And, um, you know, the, the drugs obviously didn't help. But, it, you know, he crashed and burned and then, and then it changed. So what state was he in before the motorcycle? We're going to get to the motorcycle accident, which just still absolutely fascinates me. I, mean, I can remember... His, oh, actually, this is, this is a great picture of um, him and Sarah, um, and Sarah living in, in, in the cabin in Woodstock, I think. So this is the brief moment of domestic harmony and the vast numbers of children, one every nine months. <laughs> but but yeah. what... what the, he's just building up to the point where he's you know, com going completely insane yeah. on yeah, the, this is the European this tour. Is, this is early 60s, probably yeah. March 65. That is... Peter Yarrow's cabin, or Peter Yarrow's mother's cabin, to be absolutely accurate about it, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and um, uh, Bob installed Sarah and her daughter in that cabin until he bought the house in Birdcliff. Um, that's later. That's, that is 
69, different house um, up on Ohio Mountain Road. Um, Not that long before Dylan finally tires of all the hippies who are are trying to, you know, get into his house and get into his swimming pool and won't leave him alone. And he goes back to the city. Because this is important to remember, this is in a time before security, isn't it? You know, before anybody had minders or anything like that. So so people really did turn up at Bob Mm. Dylan's door. All the time, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And, and he would walk into the house, there'd just be people, the people sitting in his bed. there, there waiting for him. couples in his bed. In his bed? Yeah, there was stuff like that. I mean, Ohio Mountain Road did at least have a gate. I hate it when that It happened. had a gate. <laughs> but yes, yes, I know. I know it happens to you a lot, Mark. And so, um, yeah, so uh, it, I think, you know, we all know that Dylan fell out of love with Woodstock. It gave, it gave him real sanctuary for a while. Creative sanctuary and um, some some privacy, um, and then and then it kind of betrayed him, and and he still to this day I think has a sort of curious bitterness towards Woodstock. Oh, really? In what way did it betray him? I think he felt like um, the very place he'd gone to escape attention then became this magnet. Well, it did. It became this magnet. You know, the more reclusive he was, the more people yeah. demanded to know what is he doing? Yeah. What's he doing? You know, yeah. there, there was no TMZ or anything like that. No, no. So people just didn't know, you know. But also they felt they had a right to know. They had a right to know, yeah. And I, we still I want feel to know what right you're thinking. Know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Was, with Bob Dylan, it wasn't so much what he did before. It was they wanted to know what he was going to yeah, do next. Yeah, because he was the so, Messiah. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, they wanted answers. Yeah, they wanted answers <laughs> yeah, from Bob. Yeah. So here, here he's surrounded by his kind of heavy friends. Explain this this little trio. <laughs> yes, yeah, because my mood is really does. He has he's got the stance of a sort of of a, of a bodyguard there, hasn't he? Which he was in the background. So this is this and he is was his alert. old school friend, wasn't he? Victor Mamoudis? Did he go to school with uh, the he, guy on the left? He, he wasn't. He was kind of a beat guy who, yeah. who was who was a sort of wannabe poet who had sort of swung into Grossman's Ken and, um, and Albert had, had, had hooked him up with, with Dylan. That's his kind of minder, really. The other guy is Bobby Newworth, and this is 64 at Albert's house in Bearsville. Bob on one of his Triumph motorcycles. There, there were a few, including the one he had the accident on. Bobby Newworth is the guy who many people would say um, Dylan was really in awe of. He kind of took his persona from Newworth. Newworth was incredibly cocky, arrogant, rude, cruel artist from, from, from Boston who just sneered at everybody, was very witty. Um, and, and in many ways, I think, I think Dylan sort of thought, oh, this is really cool. I, I, I'm going to be like that. Yes. And they would hold court together and they would just assassinate people. They would do these... So the character is in Don't Look Back is kind of based on... Yeah, yeah, yeah when he's, when he's in that. I mean, you've seen that. Yeah. being pretty horrible to Joan Byers in, in the film. You know, I mean, that's what people thought was cool in the 60s. They thought it was cool. It's that whole kind of almost Warhol-esque idea of just belittling people and sneering at people, and just cooler than thou, really. And Dylan sort of epitomised that, I think. It's not... I don't think he comes out of my book very well. <laughs> no, he doesn't. To be That's honest. True. No, you know, no, you're very, very straight but, about it. It's very candid, you know. But tell us the story of the motorcycle accident. Because, I mean, I, I can remember as a, as a kid when that happened, and, you know, you, you got this t- t- information filtered through, didn't it, as mm. to what had happened to him. And mm. so mm. What was the actual story? I mean, he, he did have the accident, but it wasn't nearly as bad as people made out. I think in just, a nutshell, you know, he was in... 
he was in bad shape. You know, uh, it wasn't just speed. It wasn't just wine. It was opiates as well. And um, it really... And, and Albert had lined up all sorts of things for him to do. And he just had a kind of breakdown. I mean, I think he probably fell off the bike. But he didn't go to hospital or anything. He went and was holed up in this doctor's house about an hour, an hour south of Woodstock in Middletown. And yeah, they kept I'm him thinking, in the house, didn't they? Yeah, I think he basically was, was in withdrawal. I think it was a supervised withdrawal. And, and Dylan knew it was time to put the brakes down, brakes on. He had kids. It was really... He couldn't, he couldn't sustain this level of kind of self-destruction. I'm pretty sure that that's what happened. Because the but, thing I didn't realise until I read this was he was about to go on tour, wasn't he? So yeah. two weeks... There was another tour line. It was kind of fear of doing that was probably, you know... Just exhaustion. I mean, you know, the guy hadn't slept for about six months. Really, I don't think, you know. And so the band were already contracted to work on that tour, and so when when he was incapacitated... They were in his employment, weren't they? Actually, these are just lovely pictures of, of life at Woodside. Well, you can see, I mean, how much healthier he looks Yeah, there. yeah, already. He's kind of got yeah. puppy, puppy fat, the return of sort of puppy fat. Yeah, that's bizarre, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's a year later, isn't it? Yeah. That is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, yeah. that's yeah. almost yeah. two years later. Yeah. That's six, around the time of probably New Morning or, yeah. This is, this, is around t- this is around the time or just after John Wesley Harding. John Wesley Harding, mm. yeah. They're brilliant pictures. You know, he looks happy. He was happy, I think. There was a period there where he was pretty happy guy. Yeah. But the band were contracted, and mm. so they were paying them every day. And so the idea was that they went to this house, they found Big Pink, didn't they, and just started recording, started, started writing songs that he could then sell to other people. Yeah, that the I basic mean, concept? Yeah, I think, you know, um, Dylan really encouraged them to strike out on their own. He, he believed that they, they could do it without him. And Robbie Robertson, guitarist, sort of, you know, putative leader, had, had kind of studied at... at, at Bob's knee in a way it really watched Bob for you know two or three years at that point and yeah so they just started I mean of course you know the the the, the summer 67 is the basement tapes and Bob is driving over every day to that pink house and they're just jamming and having fun and Garth Hudson is rolling tape and out of that came you know as as I'm sure you all know like 140 songs. Some of them are utterly ridiculous. Some of them are quite sublime. And the whole lot... He used to wake them up in the morning, didn't he? Yeah, he'd arrive about he'd noon. He'd turn up say, hello, come on, shake a leg. Yeah, yeah that's right. They'd well, hear the, 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 the typewriter upstairs. Yeah. He, had, the he had kids that got him out of the house. Exactly. Got him up and got him out of the house. They're all just lying in. Yeah, none of them had kids at that point. Yeah. So right. they, were, they were pretty, They're you know... Just a great hungover kind of, you know, fug... There and he'd arrive and start typing, didn't he? Then and his method was to sit at the window, wasn't it? And just, yeah. I'm going to write a song now. Yeah, he'd be just looking out of one of those top windows at the typewriter. And, and then they just, yeah, then it was just so relaxed. I mean, they dropped out of the summer of love, basically. You know? right. and that, So it was very, very against the grain. Whatever, what everybody else is doing, we're not doing right, that. Right, so but they probably wouldn't have even known that other, that other stuff was going on, would they? They Almost. wouldn't necessarily they were have didn't care. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, there's no internet or whatever. You wouldn't know about Sergeant Pepper or Monterey. Well, having said that, of course, you know, the impact of those songs that came out, the acetate that came out, that then people started covering those songs, and then when Music from Big Pink, the first band album, came out, 
That got everybody's attention. Yeah. And as a result of that, you had people like George Harrison and Eric Clapton going up there, like everybody else, to see what the hell they were doing. Right. What are they doing there? You know, that, and that whole notion of getting it together in the country, of dropping out of the sort of, you know, the, the music business rat race. That, it was kind of born there, and it was so influential. The music was so influential. Everything slowed down, became a bit more... Well, you have to say kind of a bit more countryfied, mm. really. You know, um, a bit more acoustic, a bit more kind of woody sounding. And tell us a bit. T- talk a bit more about this. Uh, the, the, the thing that comes out in the book is that is that nobody was expecting the band to be that good, were they? I don't think they had any idea. They knew they were this incredible band. You know, who played behind Ronnie Hawkins, who were extraordinary behind Dylan. Whether you approved of what Dylan was doing or not, but I don't think anyone had any 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 way to know that the songs on Big Pink and then the band were going to be that great. Yeah. Three sublime singers too. And three of the greatest singers yeah. on God's earth. Yeah, we got a picture of them. Uh, I think, well, just a picture of the band. There they are making the record. And and it was just, as you say, it was so influential, wasn't it? I mean, Eric Clapton heard the record and just thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break up Cream. There's, yeah, there's no point carrying on. I've, yeah. I've gone the wrong way. This is embarrassing. Yeah. You know? And even Jimi Hendrix, yeah. you know, fell under the spell of all this. You know, and he had his Woodstock summer, but he, he wanted to sort of get it together in the country as well, you know, because that's what Dylan had done, you know. But that picture's actually taken in the basement of Rick Danko's house. And when I moved to Woodstock, um, I, I rented this house and I, I didn't even know this until John Simon, the producer of the first two band albums, told me. He said, Where, which house are you living in? And he said, well, you know that, little, you know that house just down below you, the, ro- the road curls around? That, that was Rick's house. And that's where Elliot Landy took all those pictures. So I'm like, you're kidding me. So every morning I've been looking down at that house that I used to look at, you know, I used to just stare at these pictures that Elliot took of them there. And uh, that, that, was, that was amazing, looking into yeah, these windows yeah. where they... How important yeah. do you think the pictures are, were, in terms of, you know, setting... Sort of iconography of... Well, of, you know, I don't think that... anybody even knew that word back then, you no. know. But, you know, yeah. they didn't just sound as if they... Everybody said they sounded as if they came from the past, but nobody ever specified which past. Mm. It wasn't the 20s or 40s or 50s or whatever. It was just no. wasn't now. No. And they similarly didn't look like now. No. No, they looked like kind they, of frontiersmen. Well, I think, the, pi- I think yeah. the pictures are incredibly important, yeah. Dave. I think you're absolutely right. They are central to how we think about the band. One of the most extraordinary things about the band, you know, who were one of the great rock groups of the 60s and 70s, was... They never had long hair. No. They went straight from being these short-haired R&B guys Greasers. in suits, yeah. yeah, to being these sort of country guys, anti-hippies, you know, into the 70s. I mean, maybe by the time of the, of the 74 tour with Dylan, the hair was a little bit longer, but it was never long. And, that, and, and so, I mean, I think that's kind of the point. They were really anti-hippies. What, what, what Bob and the band stood for was this, was this sort of... He was, the, he was the sort of king of the hippies who hated hippies. You know, and Nashville Skyline was the sort of ultimate sort of, like, you know, um, you know giving the finger to the... Yeah. Really, well, do you like think how... We take it for granted festival. now, but it's extraordinary to think that in the, in the year of the Woodstock Festival, yeah. Dylan goes to Nashville and makes a country album. 
<laughs> yeah, and he went to the Isle of Wight Festival surrounded by all his disciples and played precisely what they yeah. didn't want to hear. He's so yeah. perverse. Yeah. I mean, we, we, the great things about Dylan is he doesn't want to be loved. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he doesn't seem to he care whether people care. like him or not. He doesn't no, care. He, he actively <laughs> wanted to put them off, <laughs> yeah. I think. Now, you've written, you've written in this book, and also you've written a very good book about the band in the past. You know, explain the basic drama of the band. You have 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for me, you know, and I discovered them when I was like 14, and it was almost like coming straight out of glam rock into Americana. I can't really explain it any other way. For some reason, I bought a copy of Rock of Ages in, in 1973, and it was just like, okay, goodbye, Noddy Holder. Goodbye, Mark Bolan. You know, I've sort of, I actually, these guys are sort of, you know, they're kind of these grown-up guys with beards who, who've been through some shit and, uh, and, and are expressing extraordinary emotions that aren't just sort of disposable pop, you know. For, so for, for me, it was, I just was, like, mesmerised. But the central drama in the group the was, drama the, was, the, the, was that Robbie was the sole songwriter credit. And yet they all contributed to the arrangement of the songs and to the composition of the songs. And then that all went... I think that's what you were also alluding to. It all went horribly wrong, didn't it? That's yeah. what you, you wanted more on... on well, it's the, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, it's part of the story, isn't well, it? Well, it is, really, it's a, They're a very odd group. Four Canadians, one American. Yeah. Sing, songwriter who doesn't sing. Yeah. Mm. You know? Mm. Uh, drummer who does sing. Mm. You know, yeah. he's probably the person we identify most with the band as the drummer. Yeah. He was probably the person who was bitterest about the rest of the group, or, or the, the songwriter. I think the, the, the problem, in a sense, is this, is that there's never been a kind of band of brothers quite like that group. There were no passengers in that group. And therefore, there was a sense of equality and mutual respect in that group that you would hope would sort of translate to something that was fair and equitable in terms of the rewards. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think... What some people would feel, and maybe I feel it too, is that is that Albert really adopted Robbie, you know, especially after Dylan had um, broken with him. And we won't go into that because there isn't time. But when Dylan left Albert's stable, two people kind of took his place. And one of them was really Robert, Robbie Robertson and one of them was Janis Joplin. Um, and, and, and certainly for Janis, Albert was like, was a surrogate dad, you know. But I think that Robbie... Albert identified Robbie as the guy who who really wanted to to improve himself. Yeah. You know, he was a street kid, a street punk from Toronto, who really wanted to learn. You know, was an also did act. He he read a lot. He went to see Bergman films. He wanted to know about good wine. All of this stuff. The others couldn't give a toss Absolutely. about. So he it, thought, you know, this so, is the guy who's going to make this group happen. Yeah. Is, Exactly. Robbie's the smart guy, the ambitious guy. So he and I think he probably sort of said, "Look, you know, I'm just to tell you a little thing about publishing here. You know, maybe the others don't really know or care, or they're too drunk or fucked up to really know how this works. But I'm going to tell you, if you're the guy who's getting up in the morning and and going to work and writing the songs, you're the guy who should really be making the money. And I think this whole situation—it's just not a black and white situation. It's all very well to say they should." You either do it like you two do it, and you just everything is split four ways. 
But if it isn't done like that, I can understand the grievances of someone like Robbie Robertson because, you know, while they were sleeping off the hangovers every morning, he was getting up and working. He was writing. Mm -hmm. And there wouldn't have been any songs if Robbie hadn't done that. So, but the truth is, the great music by the band would not have been great if it hadn't been Absolutely. for the Asm Frontman for what they did the and the arrangements exactly. yeah. and the overlapping vocal, all of that stuff. It's a, so it is absolutely a melting pot of everything. But it's such they, a tragedy that he finished up incredibly successful and living with Martin Scorsese on the West Coast and you know, and, and running the whole thing. It's another amazing thing which I didn't know, which is that he got he was producing a Neil Diamond album and get, then gets Neil Diamond into the last walls and then reduces. Uh, is it who's was it? Um, well, this is the legend. B, is it BB King? And this is kind of the last straw for Lee Von Helm, okay? Who had just made a record with my brought Muddy Waters to Woodstock. It's Muddy Waters, that's right. Yeah. So they make an album at Bearsville, and that for 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 Lee Von, that is almost like the greatest moment of his life, and he's producing Muddy in in or Henry Henry Louis, not Henry Louis. Henry Glover is is really producing it, but but it's Lee Von. Who's bringing him to Woodstock? And then, and then, at the last waltz, Robbie, whose main agenda is is kind of like, yeah, I want to be producing big name acts. I want to be, you know, I want to be an LA player, really. So he makes this record with Neil Diamond, and you know, and for for Levon, that's like, what the fuck? Does Neil Diamond have to do with the band? That's right. And, to reduce the Muddy yeah, Waters section Albert, of the film. Even Albert, who came, wasn't managing at that yeah. point, flew to San Francisco for the last waltz. And Albert was heard to mutter, What the fuck is Neil Diamond doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and so the story is that is that Robbie was trying to cut Muddy's set to make more room for Neil. And for Levon, that was really the last straw, I think. It was such a sort of betrayal of what they were about. And of course, musicians never forget, do they? Levon never forgot. He was was bitter to his dying He had a Serbian attitude to characters, didn't he? Did you say Serbian? Yeah, he didn't forget anything. No offence to any Serbs present. It's not the only nationality you say that about. So let's talk a bit about about uh, Janis Joplin, yeah. you know, who who he kind of he, he managed from her appearance at Monterey, really, didn't he? Yeah. And he, he he saw her as, you know, a big star. Absolutely. You know, he went to Monterey as did everybody else, and Janis really stole the show. She was so powerful and incredible that they demanded she do another set. And Clive Davis was 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 the guy who was going to offer the most money. Clive, it, it was kind of sewn up behind the scenes in a way. And, um, you know, Albert, uh, sorry, Janice, rather like Dylan, was ambitious. You know, on the one hand, she knew she was the queen of the hippies and it wasn't cool to be commercial. On the other, she thought she could have her cake and eat it, you know. And indeed, that's exactly what happened, you know. She still was the queen, the sort of the, 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 the queen of the counterculture, but they sold a hell of a lot of records. I mean, Cheap Thrills was like number one for like five weeks. People forget this. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a massive star. And Albert it, it, it took out a life insurance policy, didn't he? To insure her life for $200,000. And then when she died, uh, uh, affected to know that, to, to pretend he didn't know that her drug 
uh, habit was as bad as it was. Yeah. And still got $120,000, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. And I it, mean, that's, it was... that tells you something about it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I think he did genuinely love Janice, but he also knew she was a junkie and that yeah. she could die at any moment as people were, you know, people were already dying. There had already yeah. been a number of overdoses. And when the first time he sat down with Big Brother and the holding company, he, he said, apparently, you know, the, there's only one condition for me managing you is that you, you, none of you use heroin. And they all went, oh, of course yeah, exactly. not, Albert. You know, <laughs> all had been using it already for about a year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So well, yeah, the festival, we haven't talked about the festival, because that's an extraordinary thing. I mean, A, why did they call it the Woodstock Festival? It was 60 miles away. And B, what effect did that festival have on, on the sleepy little town? I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, you know, my, my book is not really about the festival, but there is one chapter that is about the relationship between the town and the festival. And there's, there's somewhat uneasy symbiosis there, really, because, yeah, I mean... Um, the reason it was called Woodstock is because the name already meant something in the counterculture. And Michael Lang, who, whose dream it was, was inspired by these little festivals that used to take place around, you know, the summer of 67, 68, around Woodstock, the Sound Out festivals. You know, he was lying in a field with 400 hippies one, one summer afternoon out of his head on acid. And he had this vision of... Imagine this times 10,000, you know, uh, and, and uh, kind of utopian a nightmare. vision. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah exactly, yeah. Um, and, and so that, that was where it was really born, you know. But the town didn't want to have anything to do with it. They didn't, there was a, a, a really, um, you know, Woodstock was still, was, despite the bohemians and the artists, sort of really kind of a pretty Republican town. The farmers, the old German and Dutch farming families were, were absolutely Republican, really not keen on these hippies who were pouring into town. Even if they were bringing, you know, hippie dollars mm. into this little town, they still were very threatened by it and they wanted to cut these kids' hair when they got off the bus and all this. So they drove Lang out, you know, you're not having the festival anywhere near here. And it was almost about to, the whole dream was about to die when he, when he ran into Max Yazga, the only Jewish farmer in the Caskills, yeah. probably. Maybe not, I don't know. But he kind of got what Lang, where Lang was coming from. And so, so Woodstock, the festival, was a sort of expression of what the town had come to mean, that, that idea of, of, of sort of rural the counterculture. And then right. vagrants, the hippies would just arrive, like do it Glastonbridge, and just arrive and start sort of living in, the, in, in, in Woodstock Village and have to be deported. And they sort of... Yeah, yeah, there, was, there, was, there were a lot of runaways, there was a lot of, and you know, the town had to look after these kids and some of them were pretty troubled and it was, it was a mess, you know, it was a mess, but, but you know, it, it was hardly the only mess in, in America Because the strange thing about Woodstock is, well, obviously it didn't take place at Woodstock, but, you know, the event was the standard disaster that happens when millions of people set off into the country with no great plan, and uh, which is then sold to the rest of the world very efficiently by a brilliant film, yeah. you know, which we all sit and watch. And go, that looks great. Yeah, I've been there. It was a yeah. nightmare for the people in there, wasn't it? You know, so that then has the curious effect of making Woodstock world famous. Absolutely. So then everybody starts pouring into it, and you know, I mean, the joke. I always say this: people still. Go to Woodstock every summer. All the tourists get off the bus. Where was the stage? Looking for yeah. the site of the festival, yeah. you know. And 
it's, it, it's comical. Fifteen-year-old Scandinavians turn up in, car- in Carnaby Street. Yeah, still, yeah. You know, yeah. How long has it been since anything faces. happened in Carnaby yeah. Street? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. These Where things are the Beatles? Just last forever. And it has become a bit of. David a joke. I used to work in Carnaby Street, and people genuinely in the eighties, people genuinely used to turn up and say, "Where are the Beatles?" We say, yeah, "You've just Paul McCartney just yeah, missed him." Yeah. And uh, George is over there, exactly. you know. It's amazing. Yeah. Gosh, have we got time for these? There's just some other well, extraordinary people. There's a Paul, Paul Butterfield. Or the Paul Butterfield, there, Tim, Harden, Tim Harden, Maria Mulder, and, Maria, and of course Ed, Ed Sanders, Sanders yeah. formerly of the Fogs. I th- it's really important just to touch on these guys because actually some of the greatest things that happened in Woodstock, both kind of musically and, and cultural, I think, happened in the wake of the festival. Um, and... Maybe the real kind of high watermark of the town's life would have been, you know, 71, 70, 71, a year very dear mm-hmm. to your heart. 71, 72, you've got these incredible records coming out yeah. of Woodstock. Yeah. Albert's got the Bearsville studio there and great records are being made there. And it's just become this incredibly funky, boho town where people are getting wrecked, sleeping with each other's girlfriends, Hard drugs are coming in, but there is a period there where the music is fabulous. You know, Paul Butterfield has starts his new band, the, the Better Days Band, which is pretty incredible. Maria, Maria Muldow with her husband Jeff made, made a couple of fab records there. The great Tim Harden was based there for a while. Um, you know, hopeless junkie, one of the greatest singers who ever lived. And Ed Sanders has lived there since um, 1973. Uh, uh, he basically bought a chicken coop out of his royalties from his book on the Manson family. Oh, right. <laughs> and he's been there ever since. And he's the kind of political conscience of the town and a brilliant guy. And of course, Van, Van the Man, you know, like Hendrix, like so many others, he comes to Woodstock because he's a Dylan nut. And he wants to know what Dylan's found there and can he have his Woodstock thing too. And so the music, musicians were turning up to see Dylan as much as that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, they I mentioned were rubberneckers like, like anybody else. And, yeah, and Van Van moves there, yeah. and he moves into the very house high up on Ohio Mountain where Richard Manuel and Garth Hudson and lived. He takes that over from them, and then he puts together the street band and choir. Moon Dance is essentially a Woodstock record. Yeah, because they rehearsed that there, didn't yeah. they? And the general feeling of the place, to, you know, percolated through, didn't it? It's quintessential yeah. Woodstock yeah. music, yeah. I think, really. And Moondance. Jimi Hendrix was, was based there when he was... Getting ready to play Woodstock. Exactly. Summer of 69, um, Jimmy spends much of that summer, you know, two or three months in this house about four or five miles southwest of Woodstock um, in, in, a, in a little place called Traver Hollow. And, and you know, he does, he does what people are doing then. You know, he's just, he has this funky time there. It's somewhere between acoustic jamming and kind of... Uh, black power fusion you know he couldn't quite decide whether he wanted to be you know Bob Dylan or Miles Davis yeah, I think. Yeah. he was having a bit of an identity crisis and being managed by this bizarre Englishman <laughs> Mike Jeffrey yeah. Turned up. yeah yeah right. yeah but even Mike Jeffrey who was a gangster from from London who was who was fleecing Jimmy was also dropping acid in Woodstock, you know gangsters on acid it's it's <laughs> it could only happen in Woodstock yeah Todd, Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren. Uh, we must mention Todd Rundgren. Yeah. And, uh, and his girlfriend at the time, Baby Be Well. I yeah. yeah. Well, one of my personal heroes, I'm afraid I am an unrepentant Todd head. I've worshipped the guy since 72, since I first heard I saw the light on the radio. I'm like, this, I'm this guy. I like this guy. And, uh, and I've, I've remained 
loyal to Todd ever since, uh, however impossible he has been. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, he has this, it, here's this guy who comes to Woodstock to engineer like stage fright by the band. And they're all looking like Civil War veterans, as you know. And he comes in, he's got yes. multicolored hair down, down to here. He's wearing red satin pants and he's an arrogant son of a bitch and he winds them up something rotten and he's got no patience Todd especially in the control booth so there was some there was some interesting conflicts yeah. there yeah but even he who's really a, he's, he come, he's from suburban Philly um, and via Greenwich Village he's, he's and he's producing the New York Dolls you know not an obvious Woodstock but he's another guy who Albert begins to manage this kid and realises he's brilliant. He's a brilliant producer and, wow, he's also a brilliant songwriter, guitarist, singer, you name it. He can do it all. So he's kind of like, he almost becomes like his new Dylan. And, and, and then even Todd gets the sort of Catskills bug and ends up, like Albert... Driving growing, tractors. Driving tractors, yeah. growing his own vegetables, yeah. creating this amazing Japanese garden at the, yeah. uh, on Mink Hollow Road. You know, so even, even Todd becomes this kind of country hippie in dungarees. It's, it has this effect on yeah. people. So Albert Grossman died when? He died in 1986. So he died on the In Concord. unusual circumstances, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, you know, Albert was, Albert was not... Um, he didn't have uh, drug or alcohol problems at all. I don't, don't think he was interested in that, but... Uh, he liked food, and he was a real foodie. I mean, way back, like, to the early 60s, this guy was importing salami, you know, in his kitchen in Bearsville was, was legendary. And ultimately, I think it was food that killed him. He just, he, you know, as, as someone I interviewed said the only interview, the only exercise Albert ever got was jogging to the refrigerator. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I think just too much rich French food but he died, ultimately killed him. He died on Concord. Yeah, he had a heart attack on Concord. No doubt having dined on Concord. Yes, fine. lavishly on pâté de foie gras. I'm yeah. sure the food would not have been good enough for him. He probably brought his own yeah, foie gras. Chef. Chef. Yeah, Somebody yeah, had a yeah, spit yeah. roasting an entire yeah. pig beside exactly. him. <laughs> yeah. So I'm afraid he arrived, he arrived in, in London and he was, he was no longer with us. He was, he was, he was gone. So there, there, there wasn't a huge turnout at his funeral, is that fair to say? I think there was. Now, I think there is a real misconception that it, that everybody hated Albert. It's just not true. People were really, really upset when he died. I, I, I don't think Dylan was. I don't Dylan, think Dylan Todd was. Todd, Todd, Todd described it as just said good riddance. Todd, well, I, yeah. have it, I have it at second hand that Todd said good riddance to bad rubbish because he had fallen out with Albert by that point. I don't know what Bob thought. But, but, and, and Levon also was no big fan of Albert at this point. But the other guys from the band were there. And, you know, Happy and Artie Traum, who are big characters in my book. I mean, Artie Traum apparently was weeping inconsolably. You know, there were people who genuinely loved Albert. I think if you were really in the inner circle, um, then you got a different Albert. If you were outside the circle, yeah. you got the guy that we all saw in, in Don't Look Back. And that's, you know, that's... That's Difficult probably the story. You know, people <laughs> did love him. So this is this is what remains of Bearsville Studios. This is the old Bearsville no, Studio. That's the great John there. Simon, in fact, who produced those um, That's band John records. Simon. But, but, and he acts who made records up that part yeah. of the world. Yeah. Tim, uh, Jeff, Jeff Buckley. Buckley made Grace there um, um, when he was still functioning. It no longer is. Um, uh, Mercury Rev um, are, are there. I'm not sure whether they've used Bearsville, but they are... 
Um, they come from nearby Kingston, and in, in many ways, they are a sort of, um, they're part of the continuum. They're very, I mean, the, the, the great Deserters songs has Levon Helm and Garth Hudson playing on it. So while you couldn't say that Mercury Rev were a throwback exactly to, to that kind of Americana, um, they nonetheless are kind of rooted in what the band right, and others right. did there. And then R.E.M. Did, did a couple of, you know, they did, did tracks for Out of Time and Automatic for the People there. It was a huge, very, very successful studio. Levon Helm, uh, in his later days, was living up there and was having these these kind of concerts in his barn, wasn't he? You could yeah. you Ramble. could turn up and you could bring food and and drink and yeah. I mean, one of one of the one of the happy things for me about writing the book was that there was a happy ending for Levon, even though you know he got cancer of the vocal cords of all things, and and even though in the end that got him. Um, he still managed to, because I went to interview him in that barn, sitting just off to one side of it, in a, in, sometime in the late 90s, and he'd just been diagnosed, and he was having, you know, he was having radiotherapy on his throat. You know, he could hardly speak. It was, it was, it was, it was, you know, painful just to be asking him questions at that point. And, and he, you know, financially in very bad shape. I think close to bankrupt. They were going to repossess the barn. And it all turned around, really thanks to one woman, a woman called Barbara O'Brien, who stepped in, took control, began managing him, and they came up with this idea of these Saturday night um, rambles in the barn. And they just became these incre incredible things, you know. Even if you felt a little bit, you know, I think where I wrote a, a piece that I called Oh, Leave On, Where Art Thou? And I felt that in some ways it was slightly contrived that he was this sort of patron saint of Americana. But the truth is, he was the, he was the real thing. He mm. was the genuine article. He really did pull together these different strands of bluegrass and rock and roll and country and gospel. He really was the synthesis of all that. And those shows were incredible. And you might have Mavis Staples singing, you might have Elvis Costello. Numerous people would just come and sit in, and people would come and they, you know, pay quite a decent amount of money to be part of this very intimate kind of living room experience. Mm -hmm. and, and I was lucky enough to get to one, and it was just fabulous. And it was music did. as it should be. Yeah, yeah. the band did sort of invent the idea of Americana, didn't they? I think ultimately they did. You know, if you yeah. talk to any of those bands, you know, the Mumford and Sons, Sons generation of bands, whatever you think of them, you know, and you ask them, you know what do you want to be? Basically, if they were really honest, they would have said, we want to be the band in Big Pink in yeah. 1967. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's essentially yeah. what we're trying well, to there do. Well, there's the Memorial Boulevard, and this is just a couple of pictures of, of Woodstock today, which I think you describe, or somebody describes in the book, as somewhere that's ossified into a sort of musician's retirement home. But what's the spirit of the place now? Well, you know, it's, it's a strange place because, you know, it, it very much depends on you know, on, on the mythology. It very much depends on... It's like a sort of themed hippie village, in a way. Yeah. You know, and it, it's very easy to be cynical about that. And, you know, I think some of the shopkeepers, when the, when the German tourists ask where the festival was held, they don't say. It was say, 60 miles just away. Just, yeah. oh, just, just, just down the road. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And by the way, you know... Um, special offer on the yeah, German Garcia t-shirt. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a little bit like that. This, you know, Woodstock makes its money in the summer. People come in and they want a souvenir. They want a tie-dye t-shirt. They want a new age yeah. crystal. And it's a bit, 
you know, it is, it's a little bit trite. But it's still a cool town with some great musicians who, who live in it. And the spirit of Bobby Charles' immortal 1972 album to, lives on. <laughs> I had to, but with 1973, yeah. is that right? Uh, 72, 72. Late, recorded late 71. This, I think, is the ultimate Woodstock record. I think it is. And, and I just wanted to plug it because if there's anybody in this room who hasn't bought this record, buy it. And if you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> I will personally give you your money back. It's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a masterful it, record. It, it is a fabulous record. I mean, Bobby was... was it's one of the great Woodstock stories. This guy, you know, he, he was the king of swamp pop, really, from, from Louisiana, and he winds up there. He didn't even He wrote Sea Alligator, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he always claimed that he had no idea that there was even a music scene there. He didn't know where Albert Grossman was. He didn't know who Bob Dylan was. But he was just adopted by... He, he, he showed up there and everybody just fell in love with this guy. He was one of the great songwriters, I think one of the great singers. Yeah. And that album is just, it's just perfect. Because it, what you say, or somebody says in the book, that one of the reasons it's so good is they didn't think they were making a record. Really. It, it was like four in the morning. It was whoever showed up. It was Amos Garrett. It was Dr. John. You know, the famous track, Small Town Talk, the book's named after, features not a bass guitar, but, but Matt Rebenack playing the bass on the foot pedals of a Hammond organ. Fantastic. It's wonderful. You couldn't yeah. make this stuff up, really. So, look, you can't make it up quite rightly. And, and it would make a good film, Barney. You must have thought of that. It's a drama, isn't it? Set in a town. I, think, I don't know. I think it's, it's almost... Just too many people, no. you know, and, and it's quite Not hard. Not in the days of Netflix, they can do that, they can. you know. They can. They do you pitch parts. it, I'll take the money. No, yeah. okay. But, well, meanwhile, you know, there's probably somebody in this room far more, you know, far more qualified than, than any of us to write a screenplay. Uh, but that's the book. Uh, which, which Barney, I'm sure, will be happy to sign a copy for you if anybody is uh, if anybody hasn't actually yeah, got Mar it. Martin from from Waterstones has loved a large right. quantity. Yeah, very kindly over Waterstones. here, and uh, and we're going to be back in in about 15 minutes with Tony Fletcher. But meanwhile, will you please say thank you, share your appreciation to Barney Hoskins. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Dave. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com